0: I'm Grant Halverson, and this is Hark the Sounds. Today's episode is different. It's a lot longer than most, but it's worth your time and attention. The man we're speaking with is one of the few voices left from his generation. His name is Dr. Jack Hughes, and he graduated from Carolina in 1939. I'll save you the math, he's 101 years old. And that's a lot of history to see in one lifetime. That history includes a front row seat to D-Day in World War II, where Dr. Hughes treated the injured from the Normandy Beach invasion. Dr. Hughes is a very accomplished man, but he's also very humble and very understated. So please keep that in mind as you listen to his story. And with that, I'll let Jack Hughes introduce himself. Well, I am
1: Jack Hughes, age 101. I was born in a small country town in southeastern North Carolina, town at that time it was known as Tabor, it later changed its name to Tabor City because it got confused uh, in the mailings to a town called Tarborough. When I g- grew up it was less than a thousand people. I went to school in the town a small town school an elementary school i had about 20. when i got to high school i had 18. the ho- total high school had 100. at that time we had uh, 11 grades and i had skipped the fifth grade so i finished high school when I was 15, and at that time, there was a law on the books in North Carolina that if you graduated from one of the approved high schools in North Carolina and the principal recommended you, the state school, the University of North Carolina and uh, what was then called State College had to accept you. That doesn't mean that they wouldn't flunk you out, but they had to accept you. So anyway, I got accepted, and I came there when just, I was just short of, a few months short of 16.
0: Well, now, we need to back up a little bit, because I heard that there might be a little something to do with a strawberry field involved in this decision.
1: My father had a little manufacturing plant that he manufactures wooden, uh, shipping containers for f- farm products and but I decided that I wanted to be a farmer and not take over the plant so he had we had a little acre of land close to town and we had a 85 acre farm out on the edge of town and had I had access to a mule and a plow and the wagons to all the fertilizer and the other things that I needed. He suggested that I start out with an acre of strawberries. So I said, that's fine. my father had the ground broken up for us so we didn't have to do the original plowing. So we planted them and tended them and kept the grass cut. But to make a long story short, at the end of one year, I decided that that farming was not what I wanted to follow, and so I thought that I would see if I could go into medicine. And I went over to Chapel, Chapel Hill, and started taking pre-med. But I also had spent more time uh, socializing and. I played a little poker and did a few other things, and at the end of a couple of years, my grades weren't exactly what I thought they should be if I wanted to get into medical school. So I was getting pretty tough, and I recall sitting at my desk one night, and I was about ready to give up. I was not doing well in the course, I I could feel those plow lines rubbing behind the back of my neck, and I said, get back on the books. You don't want to
0: go back to the farm. Jack Hughes brought up his grades and entered medical school at UNC, and immediately upon finishing his internship, the doctor found himself headed for war.
1: Remember, this was two years after Pearl Harbor, and we were... All, I mean, there was just no question about it. It was had to be done. Of course, I didn't have any any friends who were conscientious objectors. I didn't even know anybody that was a conscientious objector. But we all, all felt the same way. I finished my internship on December the 31st. And on the 11th, of January, I was called to active duty. And about 10 days later, I got my overseas orders, minimal training, and went up to Lido Beach in Long Island to where I was joined by another 199 young doctors who had just finished a year of training and 2,000 hospital corpsmen and put in groups and started sending them overseas on LSTs. And I didn't know what we were going on. I'd never heard of an LST. I didn't know what it was. But I, I was actually anxious to get wherever I was going. I didn't know where I was going. They issued me a a 45 pistol and a, a short rifle carbine, and gave me cold weather gear, heavy jackets, a big heavy sheepskin jacket and long underwear, and I thought, well, hell, I'm going to Iceland or somewhere, but it'll be interesting. So I well, finally got in a got put aboard an LST and headed out and and got up to Nova Scotia. And then we had to wait for a convoy. And then I got in a convoy of 55 ships. About, uh, I think, a dozen of them were LSTs. And it took us two weeks. We had a slow convoy. The weather was so bad, but we finally got to Milford Haven, Wales. After a couple of weeks there, I was moved over to a different LST from the one I'd crossed the Atlantic on. And I st- still didn't know where we were going. It was pretty evident that something was going to happen. We didn't know. But we were a little, we were a little concerned. We weren't highly trained of all of it, so it had some surgical experience. And, and we had read a lot, but we didn't get any, really got practically no training. When well, we got to Lido Beach with these 200 doctors, they brought us all in there to get us organized into to groups. The captain in charge of us said, I need an executive officer. Anybody had any experience? And unbeknownst to me, a friend of mine was standing right behind me and he took his finger and pointed right (laughs) he said doctor what's your name and I told him my name and so forth come up here so I went up and said you're my executive officer
0: (laughs) Congratulations! (laughs) Not only did you take the the leadership, but you also took, I think, spiritual leadership as well.
1: I was on the way over when we were crossing the Atlantic, and uh, the uh, skipper asked me if I'd conduct some Sunday services. I don't know why he picked on me, but I said, sure. I knew some scripture, and, and I got something together, and... So we had for two or three Sundays, I had Sunday service. <laughs> so I was sort of a jack of all trades, and I, I came up, and we didn't have. I, I just, I didn't have anything to do.
0: Is that why you started keeping your diary, or is that when you? No, started I your diary? started.
1: I started. I just had a little. I've still got it, just a little, little pad. And I started writing down something. It wasn't a daily diary. It wasn't really a diary. It's just every few days I would write down what I wanted. It's, it's a lot and a lot of a lot of stuff. There's a lot of it you like to forget, but uh, most of it you learn. You learn after you know. You don't want to talk about it at first. It takes you a long time to. Get in a talking mood, but then then when you get old, you get in a talking mood, and you don't want to stop <laughs> and so but uh that was a lot to lot 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 to think about a lot to do. We had our uh, medical group, the two young lieutenant j g s it had a year or nine months or to a year of training, and then our 14 corpsmen. But also, they assigned uh, a week before uh, D Day, they sent an experienced Army surgeon with a, an aid man and three big suitcases of instruments to be with us on D Day. to treat help us treat the wounded. We'd had no experience treating wounded. We'd done things like um, a few appendices and treated things in the emergency room, but we never really had it. And we'd done a lot of suturing, but we hadn't had any. We'd done a lot of assisting, and we'd seen a lot of things. And because uh, of a lot of the doctors in the training centers had been called up in Army and Navy hospital units. They were all short of doctors. And the interns and the residents in the hospital did a lot of a lot of the work that they normally wouldn't have done. But anyway, so we had that, that back up. But in addition, on our tank deck, in addition to the hundred and 55 millimeter meter howitzers huge guns that were pulled by a truck we had a frontline hospital sort of like a mass unit front they weren't they didn't call them mass units in but that had about 20 doctors in this unit so they 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 helped us out and they did we would have been all right without the army surgeon, cause these guys were hadn't done anything for a long time, and they were they had itchy fingers. They were anxious to get hold of those wounded, so as soon as we got them off of that, got them off the out of that small boat that didn't have any stretchers on it or anything. They just had first aid up on the beach and sent out to us, and. By the time we'd get them hauled up and ready to go, they they were waiting in the operating room that we had on the back of the tank deck. They were waiting in the operating room for them, ready to go.
0: Well, so you're going to make me jump time here. I understand that you, and and the phrasing that I've heard is medical history with the appendectomy that you performed. So uh, you need to walk me through that because when I hear that you're pulling kitchen utensils out... (laughs) I would like to hear that entire story from start to finish.
1: <laughs> All right. I don't know exactly how long it was, probably several weeks after D-Day. At least two weeks, and it might have been as long as I would have to look it up. But anyway, it was far enough along that things had quieted down that we could let our crew, half the crew, have a night in Southampton on the town. So they did, and Next morning at call, about nine o'clock, one of the uh, first-class mechanics, machinist mates, anyway, he came in and said, "Doc, said I got I got, I got the bellyache, and I feel nauseated. And I don't feel good." And I said, "Hmm, were you in? You you go ashore last night?" He said, "Yes, sir, I did." And I said, "How many beers?" He said. I didn't have but two. I said, "Hmm." So I checked him over, and he had just a little low-grade fever, and he had a little tenderness in his abdomen, just enough to make me a little suspicious, but not really. I was still convinced that it was more than two beers that he had, that was causing it. So uh, I said, "Well, you go back and..." Get back in your bunk and let me check you again in a couple of hours. So I checked him again, and he was—he said, "I'm—I'm—I'm beginning I'm, I'm to hurt, and uh, I don't I don't feel good." So I checked his temperature, and he had about a degree of fever, and he was getting abdominal tenderness. And I said, uh, i don't—I don't, I don't like this." So later on, I don't know how long, I, I did a blood count and it was a little elevated and, and he was getting more tender. So about, I don't know, four or five o'clock in the afternoon, it was pretty evident that he had what we called a hot belly, that there was something going on there. So I had did another blood count and it had gone on up and his uh, temperature shot up another degree. So I, I, my partner had was doing something else, so I got him in on it and we we decided, this was after doing some other things, we decided this thing was, this, this was hot. So we called around to see, and the, it was rough. The sea was rough, the English Channel was rough. We were going over to Utah Beach with a load of toilet paper and boots and uniforms. We'd stop most of our trips after that were no longer soldiers waiting to go in. So we went up to the skipper and said, we got we gotta do something. There's not a hospital ship by. We can't get close by anywhere. We couldn't probably couldn't transfer him if you did. I said, we got to, we gotta do something. And he said well we're although we are close to, to shore, we're not scheduled to beach until in the morning so we we <laughs> we can't can't wait so he he got real excited about that he 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 loved this all this action, you know, so he sent a signal in to the beach master and request permission to beach earlier for emergency operation. We need a stable platform, which, I, I mean, it was rough. It. So they got back and got permission. So it was just about high tide about that time. So we rammed into the beach and landed on the beach and it the tide went out. By the time we got ready to go, the tide had come out. So we were sitting on sand, on dry land. and they had a had a stable platform (laughs) to do the operation we had it was an eight by 12 foot operating room on the on the after end of the tank deck and it was closed off with heavy canvas with some well had some rails iron railings but at the top there was about about a foot of open space all the way around, but otherwise it was enclosed. It was a nice little lobby. We really had very good equipment, but we didn't have the instruments because the the Army surgeon and his aide had left two or three weeks before since we weren't having any any injuries, so we didn't have any instruments except what we normally kept, which were some, we had some hemostats and we had a knife and we had some local anesthetics. that, uh, it wasn't long acting that we preferred, but I had given a lot of spinal anesthetics as a, as a resident and so I gave him the, the anesthetic, but anyway, we didn't have any we didn't have any retractors any deep retractors or skin retractors so we went to the kitchen and got some forks and got some spatulas different size spatulas and we took them down to the machine shop and bent the forks over so we could so to get skin retractors and then we did the same thing with the different lengths uh spatulas and we bent them so we could get retractors of different lengths to get down into the for the deep stuff and then took them down and sterilized them and got them all ready and and it, it didn't take too long it was an hour or two we were we were ready to go so we went in and I told my partner I mean he was he was the senior officer and he'd had more, a little more surgery than I had so I said, "All right, you're the senior surgeon, and uh, so you get to make the incision." But I said, "I'm, I'm, I'm suggesting, I'm recommending that we that we don't do a buttonhole appendix incision." While we were doing the operation, well, and after I told you we had we were loaded with toilet paper and all these big boxes, cardboard boxes stacked on each other, thing up to the to the overhead. But there was a couple of feet room between the boxes and the, and the overhead. And I looked up there, and here were these eyes. <laughs> About four guys looking through, <laughs> watching the operation through the, through, the, through the crack in the canvas. <laughs> we do a big incision, cause we don't know what we gonna find in there. So we made a big, long incisions a good thing we did because we got in there we had trouble finding the appendix and what had happened was it was one of those rare ones that was back up under the bowel that was almost up to the liver so we had to free up all of that and go and get down and the appendix was the tip of the appendix was it was just about ready to rupture so we were fortunate that there wasn't a hospital ship that we would have spent half the night trying to get anyway we got it out but when we uh, as we were closing up the anesthetic wore off it was a short acting <laughs> uh, short acting uh, anesthetic so we we were just we had the appendix out and we we're just getting ready to close when it began to wear off, so we had, we didn't have, we did inject some local, we had local anesthetic, so we injected that and kept giving him surreptes of morphine and holding him on the table. (laughs) And we got it closed and uh, got him off, got him off the table back and so that, He did fine. I mean, he was... Of course, we had IV fluids and all that, so we could give him good post-op care. And we got back to Southampton two days later to the Navy Hospital there to transfer him over to the hospital to recuperate. So I took him in. We put him on a small boat, and he was up walking around. He he, He really did very well. And... So I checked in at the where well, we pulled up in a small boat and got the officer of the day down and all that stuff and to yeah. check him into the hospital and he wanted to know the all the information and we had to, we gave him the papers and he had to ask a lot of things and and yeah. he said and uh, you had an appendectomy we said yeah when mm-hmm. two days ago. and what ship were you on? I said, LST-497. He wrote down LST-4, and he looked up to me, LST, the hell you say?
0: (laughs) Did the cooks ever forgive you for stealing their silver?
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, they were very generous. We had a good... We had, a, we had a good crew when things were tough.
0: What did they tell you about
1: D-Day? D-Day was supposed to be the fifth. About four o'clock on the afternoon of the fourth, the skipper called all the officers into the ward, ward room and sat us down, and he had a book about that thick, Operation Overlord. To make a long story short, he told us what we were gonna do. We were going to hit the beach at 800 hours, which would have been three hours after the first Wave of soldiers came to the beach. And they said, he told us, he said, we do not expect any problem on the beach. The Navy bombardments and the Air Force bombing will knock out all the German armament, all the, it'll take care, it'll pretty well wipe out everything. And there'll be all sorts of foxholes on the beach for the people to get in and said, you not, you shouldn't have, shouldn't be much in a way of wounded. And shouldn't be any, shouldn't really be any problem. So what you will do is you will pull up at low tide and get as far in as you can and drop your ramp and, and said you'll unload and it shouldn't take you very long, and then you can back out and go back and get another, go back to wherever port you're assigned to and load up again. Well, that was fine, except the first night we got out into the channel and it was so rough we had to come back. And they put it off till instead of the fifth, they put it off to the sixth. So we pulled out and on the 6th, uh, I don't know about, so we started leaving about seven or eight o'clock. We started whenever high tide, where we were, we were at low tide, we were sitting on, on the ground. So we couldn't pull out until the tide came in and lifted us up. And so it did and we got out into the channel about midnight and then they said, this time we ain't coming back, we kept going. And so naturally we were assigned general quarters for that trip across the channel. And we're scheduled to get at the beach at 0800. So we were started out along with another 99 LSTs and 3940 other ships. But as I got up about I Well, I really hadn't been in mid, I'd been in General Quarters, and about 4 o'clock I just got out of my little paint locker, wherever I was in General Quarters, and came up on deck, and it was daylight by then anyway, and as far as I could see, there were ships everywhere of every kind, battleships, destroyers, Mine sweepers, everything carrying troops and material. A thousand—I don't know how many thousand there were—and flight of airplanes going over. Ever, the sky was rarely empty, or you could hear. It was almost constant roar planes flying. Anyway, we got in and got to our position, I don't know what time it was, maybe 7 o'clock or 6 or I don't know, and we waited there t- so that we could time it and hit the beach. And there were 12 of us, 11 or 12 of LSTs in our group, we were going into Fox Red section of the beach, which was a mile just each of the, those cliffs of the dock where the big guns were which actually weren't functioning fortunately. But they had plenty of other stuff on the ground that was pillboxes everywhere. Well, as I say, they had told us that there wouldn't be much action on the shore. Well, that ain't the way it I mean, by the time we got there there was carnage. I mean it was it was a mess. And as we started in We were second in line and I didn't, I got tired of being at General Quarters and in my station. So I got up and went up to the bow of the ship and we were heading in. I don't know how close we got to shore. I mean, it seemed to me like we were there, but we weren't. I don't know, might've been a thousand yards off. But anyway, the ship in front of us got hit, took a hit and got its bow doors blown off. I think they'd already decided that we weren't going in and unload at that time. So they signaled us to back down. So this ship started backing down. After well, after it got hit, I didn't wait till they started backing down. I was on the bow of the ship where at a spot where the other one had gotten hit. So when that happened. I headed back to the place I was supposed to have been (laughs) in a hurry and about that time the engines went in reverse at flank speed and we backed down and the two heavy cruisers that were the headquarters for the 29th division and they were at general quarters and I could see the and their, their, their anti-aircraft guns were turned around and they were, so anyway, we had an old time sailor there who was a, a warrant officer, he had been promoted up through the ranks and he was talking to the skipper and and he said, uh, skipper he said, right over there between those two cruisers, he said, I think that's a good place for us. <laughs> and Skipper agreed with him immediately, so we went headed right over there between those two, dropped the anchor, the hook, <laughs> and secured the guns, and and then watched the beach till it got dark.
0: For the next however many hours, I what were you doing?
1: I, you know, I can't. I don't remember. I have blocked. I blocked out everything. Or. I have a vision of this truck exploding and burning, but I don't, I I just, but some of the, see, some of the worst part of the beach was, it was already over. See, it started about five o'clock and by the time this was, I don't know, maybe nine o'clock and by that time it had calmed down, but I mean, you could, you the 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 wrecks were there and but i i've tried to think and i that part there there i have lost there's about 8 or 10 hours in there that i have lost and i just i don't i cannot i and this is not just recent i mean from early on i, I just couldn't well, I don't know why. we just block it out.
0: I assumed that there were casualties coming on board.
1: We didn't, we couldn't get any, we didn't get any casualties. To, they couldn't get them out to us. See, the beach was entirely covered, any action on that, everything, they tried try to, they'd, they did send in a few people, but every time they'd get any, anybody come in there, boy, they were dead because they had every, I went back up a couple of days later, I went up and looked at those pillboxes and they had drawings on the walls of the pillboxes with every inch of the beach with the settings for the guns. They had the setting of the guns, they'd see something in that section, all they had to do was Turn the knobs, get the guns, <laughs> and
0: was that when you started to see the casualties coming back on board?
1: Yeah, that first night, we just we only got was about a hundred, which is about as many as we could have handled. But the others did too. Of course, a, a num uh, three three of the LSTs hit mines and blew up, and I lost a good friend but that first day was when the the things were the worst by the time the the we started that load of wounded came out it was almost dark and the seas were rough about 6 8 feet that small boat was bouncing up and down of course the LST up too but it being bigger it didn't Bounce like the small one, so not sent the 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 Corman's. They, they weren't on. They uh, uh, a lot of them were walking wounded. A hundred were walking wounded, so they climbed up the the nets and ropes, various ways we had of getting them up. We had about twenty though that were seriously wounded, and we had to get them up topside, and they we had to go down and put them on stretchers and haul them back up. Well, we had rehearsed all of this and got various lines and pulleys. and So I would send a corpsman down into the boat to get them on the wire basket stretchers that we had to put them in. Well, they'd stay down there and get about one or two persons aboard and they were so sick they couldn't operate. Well, it didn't take long to run out of 14 corpsmen except... I had one left and I still had about a half a dozen wounded that had to get topside. So I took, looked to the corpsman and I said, can you do it? He said, let's go. So down we went and I'll tell you, it wasn't long before we were, (laughs) we'd work a little bit and then upchuck a little bit and then work a little bit. And I don't know how much adrenaline that. Our adrenal glands poured out, but it it had because that's what we were operating on. I mean, it was, it was nothing. It was I, I, that's a, that's the sickest I see mm. I've ever been. I mean, I don't know how I always got the pleasure of going down and doing these things. <laughs> anyway, but having those. Uh, that army uh, hospital unit on board and ready to work, that really saved us. I would have had to uh, somehow pull myself together and, and and help my partners if we hadn't had them. And we sent, oh, I don't know, eight or 10 of the most serious ones over to a hospital ship. So between the two of them, we, we got them taken care of. And we lost, we lost one, we had one death on board before we got back to Southampton to the Navy Hospital. I don't remember exactly the details, but he was the only one only one we lost. It was amazing how quickly the Army up on the cliffs made an air, airstrip for the d c threes c forty sevens to land and so after well after certainly after the third day, the really serious wounded they were flying them out, so we were just taking the walking wounded and and we weren't we weren't really doing any any, any uh, surgery. I think we did one or two amputations, but, and that's why after, I don't know how long it was. They had control of the beach by sundown after how many thousand people had died, like 1,500 on that that one mile, there were 1,500 on the one mile.
0: Once the casualties started arriving, how long did you work until you Got to a point where it calmed down.
1: Oh, just the next day.
0: <laughs> Did you work straight through? Was it eight hours, ten hours, twelve hours? Or well,
1: we didn't. You know, I can't tell you what happened. It's just, it's. I, I don't recall.
0: Do you remember what your first clear thought was once you had a chance to step back and breathe? You know. I don't know
1: I can't I can't tell you the one thing that was always in my mind was we don't have any option as to what we're doing and pretty soon I got to the point like most other people do if one of them got your name on it you're done for if not you keep going, you don't have any option. This is something that has to be done, that we don't have any choice. That working for the Germans or the Japs or both of them is just, is just not an option. We just, we, we've got to win this thing. We'll just depend on the leaders to tell us what to do and we'll do the best we can and hope for the best. I thought about that a lot, but there's just so much that I can't I can't fill in. I don't know what I was doing. It's just as if I were asleep. And I might have been, I don't know.
0: <laughs> I think the mind does what it has to do to keep itself functioning.
1: Yeah, I I think it, it 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 does. It does. I also counted my blessings many times that I hadn't gotten there earlier, that there wasn't a land mine where we went or there wasn't a floating mine that the minesweepers had missed when we were going through. I, I thought about that a lot. And that's where I, I got hooked on this thing of of survival, Not only in war, but in all time, that there's a lot of luck involved. That being at the right place at the right time or the wrong place at the wrong time. And that's one of the things that I'll emphasize when people ask me, to what do you owe your longevity? And I say, picking your ancestors correctly and a lot of luck.
0: Thank you to Dr. Jack Hughes for sharing his memories, and thanks to you for listening. See you next time.